Well, you know what? I'm glad to be here today. How about you? <laughs> and you know what else? You have one fantastic pastor. I am just telling you this uh, Dr. Pennington here <laughs> worked hard for that title, but he probably doesn't use it that much knowing him because he's humble and all of that. And by the way, I only go by Carolyn, so if you come up and call me doctor, I won't answer. So, um, But Josh, Pastor Josh is absolutely amazing. He was um, brilliant in class, all right? I'm just saying. So how'd you get this guy? I mean, this guy is phenomenal, and you get to sit under him and listen to him preach and teach, and you are one lucky, blessed congregation. <laughs> so, you know, I was praying what to share with you today, and um, I... I absolutely love revivals. I, I think that uh, Pastor Josh mentioned that I he took a class on revivals for me. I'm kind of a revival historian, but I'm not going to get into those stories of revival today, although I, you know, you'd be here for a week or so if I started with that, but I'm not going to do that today. But I um, I was praying about what to share with you, and I sense that this church has a hunger for revival, and that was verified by your pastor as we were talking last night. And, you know, in, in the spirit, I just felt like the Lord said, I, I want to give them, I want you to give them a principle that will move them along towards their heart's desire for revival. So that is what I am going to share today. And I am going to talk today about the fountain of living water. And uh, I, I studied this in order to share these things with you today and found out some great things myself. You know, one of the wonderful things about preaching and teaching is that we get to study and find out and learn ourselves. I, I just keep learning and growing. So I'm really excited. I've never preached this sermon to anybody else before. It's just for you. And um, I'm excited about sharing with you what it is that the Lord showed me about the fountain of living water and actually what that has to do with revival. I'd like to um, have a main verse that we talk about, and that's John 7:37. And on that verse, if you want to turn to that on the, yeah, it says this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Now, you may have um, heard of this verse before. It's probably not entirely new to you if you've been in the church for a while. But um, when I read it, that's this is the one that the Lord gave me to share with you today, and and I thought, okay, I'm going to ask some questions about this verse. First of all, what is the last and greatest day? And what is the festival? And why did he speak in a loud voice? And why did he say what he said at that point in time? So those were the questions that were in my mind. 
And so I started to look at um, the festival that was being related here in John. So on the next slide, I have for you some of my findings. I discovered that the festival that they were talking about was the Feast of Tabernacles. Sometimes it is called the Feast of Booths, like you, are, you live in a, a booth or like a booth where you um, sell something, but that's what isn't what it was. It was where they lived. It was like a shelter, a temporary shelter. And the word in Hebrew is Sukkot. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right because your pastor took Hebrew, right? This summer you did it. <laughs> so is that the correct that's the correct pronunciation, Dr. Pennington? <laughs> Glad to hear it. And this was a harvest festival. In actuality, um, this year, it's going to be celebrated by those who are Jews, uh, September 21st to the 28th. So it's coming up very soon. You're in the very month that this is going to happen. It was actually the last festival. There were many feasts and festivals, but there were three that the Jews were supposed to go to Jerusalem and participate in. And this was the third and last of those big festivals. Um, they, the first one was actually the Passover, the second one is the day of Pentecost, and the third one is Sukkot, the festival of um, the booze or the harvest festival. And it lasted for, if you count up the 21st to the 28th, it lasted for eight days. But this is an interesting festival, I found out, because normally um, a festivals were a week, seven days. But they added on one more day. And the eighth day was a very special day. It was called the last and greatest day. Ah. Now we see when it was that Jesus spoke. It was the eighth day of the festival or the Feast of Tabernacles. And the people um, actually did live in booths. Um, they made them. They were temporary, as I said, shelters for that whole week. They um, put them up. Sometimes they would collect the materials that they would need for it and haul it in from out in the countryside. And then they would erect tabernacles all over the town of Jerusalem. They'd be in the streets. They'd be up on somebody's um, rooftop. Uh, wherever they could find to build one, they would actually build a temporary shelter. And it was um, originally, according to the law, made to uh, have them have a time to reflect of when their ancestors were in the wilderness and lived in temporary shelters as they um, wandered with Moses through the wilderness. I think it's really interesting because it indicates to us too, if we think about it, that even if we have a house or whatever, our, our lives are temporary. We um, have only a short space here on earth. We are not going to inhabit this place forever. We have another home. And our other home is going to be heaven. 
And that is going to be absolutely amazing. That's our permanent home. This is our temporary place. And you know, we cannot forget that this is our temporary place. In fact, if we think that this is it, wow, I mean, we're going to have a sad and depressed life. There's a lot of stuff going on here. There's a lot of pain, especially since COVID has come. I think we all just sense that absolutely temporal feeling of this, you know, I mean, people are gone in a flash and, and it, it's, it's been so hard, hasn't it? And yet this is something that I think God wants us to remember all the way along. Our life is short here. It is meant to be temporal. It is meant to be impermanent. And when they lived in the shelters that they made, it was like, okay, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. I mean, we're not going to live in this the whole time. It was really a remembrance to them too, that there was heaven, that God had other plans for them, that the earth was not the permanent place in which they resided. And when they made the booze, it's really interesting because they um, made it out of four kinds of material. Um, they were actually specified in the law. They made them out of willow or myrtle um, branches, out of uh, date branches, out of olive branches, and then they were allowed to have big branches because, of course, they would have to um, build some kind of a frame that they would just cover with these other branches. And the big branches were usually from a palm tree, I guess. So those three things were um, what they made those little shelters out of. And you'll notice there were dates and there were olives. In fact, sometimes they would put other kinds of fruit, um, hang it on, on there, because this was the harvest season. So it, part of this idea is that there's fruit um, even in your temporary living. <laughs> Isn't that neat? So you'll see a guy there on the picture, and he has something he's holding in his hand. He's actually holding what they call a lavel, and the lavel was made out of um, kind of a bouquet almost, if you will, of the four kinds of things that they built their booze out of. And the men would go around with those, and they would swing them high, and praise God with those. You can just picture what that would be like. And lots of times they would carry um, some fruit in their hand. They carried what they called an egrot, which we don't even know probably what that is, but it's very much like a lemon. It's a citrus fruit from there, and it's much like a lemon. So again, to indicate that idea of fruit. Now, on this next slide, um, I want to start telling you a little bit about what happened during the seven days um, before the last and greatest day of the festival. First of all, there would be um, priests that would come out of the water gate of the temple, and they would um, people would be waiting for the priests to come out, and there would be a large procession that would wind its way down from the temple mount. The, the temple in Jerusalem is up on a mount, a mountain, a hill, they would wind down to the pool of Siloam. And there would be a very special um, golden vessel that the priest would use, and he would scoop up um, a lot of water out of the pool of Siloam. 
Now that Pool of Siloam even has meaning. Probably you've heard it before. And the Pool of Siloam actually means um, the Pool of the Sent One. So the Messiah's Pool. They were uh, still believing that the Messiah was going to come at the point that this feast was being held. And it was like an anticipation that they would go to the Messiah's pool and get water from the one who was going to be sent to them, which we know is Jesus. They would gather up all of that water out of the pool, and then they would take it all the way back up um, to the temple. And there would be a lot of celebration and cheering and song and exaltation while all of this was going on. And then when they got up there, they would pour the water on the sacrifice that was on the wall, um, on the altar, and they would talk about the Holy Spirit being poured out, actually. They believed they used the word ruach, the Hebrew word for spirit, and the Holy Spirit being poured out. And it was like, okay, we're going to get the, the Messiah is going to come. We're going to get the Holy Spirit. There was an anticipation that was almost palpable. I mean, you could almost feel the anticipation of the people that God would actually meet them. So the worship was fantastic. There were trumpets, there were shofars, and you can just imagine the kind of atmosphere that this would be. Now, I guess I'd like to throw in something to with you here and um, at this point, and that is that just two chapters after this, in chapter 9, we have Jesus, and it's after the festival that this happens, but um, he actually sends a blind man down to the pool of Shalom. And you might remember that the, he sees this blind man who's been blind from birth, and he reaches down and he gets mud. He spits in it and he gets mud. He puts it on the blind man's eyes. And he tells the blind man to go to the pool of Shalom and wash and that he would see. Now, it's intriguing to me because if you know how the temple is set up, this is a long ways for a blind man to go. It was really quite a walk, and it was downhill to get from the top of the temple all the way down to the pool of Siloam. In fact, there was closer water nearby. The um, pool of Bethesda was, um, Bethsaida, excuse me, was right there nearby the temple. Why didn't Jesus say to the blind man, you can go there? <laughs> you know, just wash in the pool of Bethsaida. Well, the reason is Jesus was actually sending that blind man down to the Messiah's pool. He was basically saying, I'm the sent one. I'm the water that's going to heal you. And he was echoing something that we're going to see come out just a little earlier here in chapter 7. It's so beautiful when you think about it because um, if you were a Jew, this would not have been lost on you. But sometimes we read the Bible and we, we don't know all of these Jewish traditions. And so, you know, we kind of think, okay, he sent him to a pool, wherever that was, big deal. He, he saw, he washed, he did it, it's done. Praise God, he did, you know, a miracle. 
but there's so much symbolism behind all of it that it's absolutely incredible. Because he was saying to that blind man, I want you to come to me. I'm the water that's going to heal you. It's my pool that's going to make a difference in your life. And that theme is what we see in um, chapter 7. Now, the next um, slide, I have a few more uh, pieces of information. And that is, I want to talk about the seven, a little bit more about the seven days of the Festival of Booths. First of all, there were sacrifices every single day. They also had a lot of music because there were so many different instruments during that time. So um, people would be playing almost throughout the whole day. There would be so many songs. It would be like a whole day of worship. They would stop at different times, and um, people and the priests would recite, especially Psalms 113 to 118. So if you want to get more insight on this, go read those this week. It's interesting to see how that figures into the Feast of Booze. And in actuality, they had like five steps like you do. They were um, curved and long, and it went, so it was almost like a choir stand. And the priests would um, go up on those and stand in lines, and they would recite um, Psalms 113 to 118 together, actually, all of them. Another thing that happened is that there was exuberant praise and worship. And when it comes, you know, pe people were, by the way, almost just yelling and screaming. I mean, they were, they were happy. It was just an amazing time. And they also, as far as the sacrifices go, did something interesting. They started, there were so many, there were sheep and goats, and all kinds of things. But when it came to bulls, it's very interesting because they sacrificed 13 bulls on the, fourth, uh, on the first day of the festival, and then they did one less bull each day of the festival. Now, it came out to exactly 70 bulls over the seven days that they um, sacrificed. That's a lot of meat. <laughs> That's actually a lot of feasting, if you can imagine. I mean, this is going to feed not only the priests, but the people. And they ate during this particular time. I mean, it was like special things going on. In fact, they would have their best um, uh, bowls and urns and everything in their booths. And, um, you know, it was, it was just like setting out your table for the very best possible thing that there could be. And yet, on the very last day, the eighth day, after sacrificing 70 bulls all the way along throughout the seven days, there was only one bull that was sacrificed. Only one that day. And so it was a special day. During the um, nighttime also, on the next slide, the uh, festivities just kept going on. There was um, feasting in their booze. They'd have their friends in, um, entertain. And at night, also, they lit very large menorah, um, you know, the uh, candelabra that the Jews use that has all the different candles. Well, these were like that, except they were actually so tall, and they were made um, to burn on oil. So there would be more like, instead of just a candle, be more like a whole flame coming out, like huge huge torches almost, 
And the priests actually like would climb up and light those. And, and I don't know if you can see it in the picture, but there are pictures of those very tall menorah. In fact, they were so high and they were so bright that it is said that every courtyard in all of Jerusalem was actually flooded with light. This must have been something. They, they danced, um, they celebrated before God and rejoiced in him. And so you can only, I mean, it, it was kind of in my mind, I mean, it's not anything exactly like this, but the biggest thing I could think of was like a rock concert or something. I mean, you know, there was it, the light from the menorahs would go out against the gold walls of the temple, and it must have been absolutely stunning. I mean, people who talk about it say that if you had that the gold leaf on the temple and it was the lights from the, these big menorahs were bouncing off of it, you can just imagine it was it was a a show for that time, you know? I mean, it was just an amazing celebration. So that, um, those seven days bring us to uh, the last day, the last and greatest day of the feast. Now this was a little different than all the other seven days. It was considered a sacred assembly and the law told them to make sure that it was a sacred assembly. It tended to be more solemn. It tended to be more reflective. And it was just amazing because this sacred assembly was a very, very special day. It was like it was a Sabbath, and so they treated it that way. And what the priests would do on that day is to circle all together, all of them, circle, there were a lot of priests, circle the altars, um, the altars seven times, and then they poured out the water. The pouring out of the water that day was really special. They made a, a bigger thing out of it than even on the other days. And again, the people were reflecting and thinking about the whole week. This was the last and greatest day of the festival. So they were reflecting on the fact that our dwellings are fragile and temporary. The bodies we live in are, are fragile. And they were also thinking about the harvest, the fact that when they go back, God is still going to provide for them, that he has provided for them. You know, I was reading some of these things and thought, boy, do we need this right now in our society. <laughs> you know, we, we need this picture of God as our provider, the fact that, yes, we are fragile and temporary, but God is here with us in the midst of all of this, and he is going to provide the fruit, um, and I think that's spiritual fruit. Just think about the days that we live in and what it is we're learning during this time in light of this festival. There was also, during this time, a great call for Hosanna. Now, you've heard that term, Hosanna, and it has turned more into a praise term now. But originally at that time, it had a different meaning to everybody. When Hosanna was said, it literally meant, save now. It was like a crying out, Hosanna, save us now. 
And it was almost a pleading when they would say Hosanna. Like, please, God, save us. Please, God, rescue us. Have mercy on us. So there was this, this Hosanna, meaning, had a pleading to God to come and help them and to be with them. There was a, a huge cry for help, especially on this eighth day, this last and greatest day. There was also great anticipation and expectation that God himself would come. They would think about the water coming from the pool of Siloam, the pool of the sent one, being poured on the sacrifice. And of course, we know that would be the one bull being Jesus, the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. And there was an anticipation that God's presence would be palpable that day, that they could feel it, that he would come down to them and the Messiah would come too. There was this huge expectation that was built on the last day. It was also a solemn time of repentance, a time of reflection and a time of rest because it was a Sabbath. So there wasn't as much shouting. It was very quiet. In fact, after the sacrifice had the water poured out on him, it quieted down and people stood around the altar in silence. They were thinking about themselves they were looking at their own lives and thinking, oh God, you know, how about me? Thinking about, again, that temporary part of life, thinking about their own sin, thinking about how much they needed a savior. There was an anticipation that God would help them. When, when you think about what that last day meant, it was absolutely incredible. And so they're quiet. This is when Jesus spoke up. Can you imagine this picture? Out of the silence, out of the reflection, out of thinking of their need, Jesus arises, his voice comes out and cries out. He's not quiet. He's not whispering this. He is crying out. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Oh my goodness. I mean, I don't know about you, but I get shivers talking about it. I just think it's amazing. He had the courage to stand there and proclaim himself as that water of life. He is saying to everybody at the festival, and there's thousands of people there, and out of the quiet, out of the silence, he yells out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Oh, that would create a stir. The priest would be thinking, how dare he? 
What is he saying? He's basically proclaiming himself the Messiah in front of everybody at this feast. He's basically saying, you don't need that water that was poured on the sacrifice. You need me. He was saying, I'm the one. If you are thirsty, anybody, anybody, anywhere, any single person, anybody can come to me and drink. I can't imagine what the people thought. It, it was such a major proclamation. It was such an important thing to say. And he goes on. In fact, let me just read you the next parts and the next verses. It says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Wow. He repeats again, whoever believes in me, he is definitely talking about himself as the Messiah. He says, if you believe in me, just like scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within you. And the living water always referred to the Holy Spirit, and the people knew this. Remember, I said that that water that was poured on the sacrifice was related to the Holy Spirit. He's basically saying, you come to me and drink, and when I leave here, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. You're going to get the Holy Spirit. It's going to be like a stream of water welling up from within you. And that stream of water will keep going, keep flowing, because the Holy Spirit will keep doing his work in the world today. Oh, my friends, that's where we stand right now. We stand right now in that same place where the Holy Spirit, when we accept Jesus and believe in him, the Holy Spirit is in us. This is why we love the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The baptism in the Holy Spirit gives us more of the Spirit. And we need that stream flowing out of us. And it's very clear in this verse. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. He would be glorified. The Passover, this was the last feast before the Passover where he was, was killed. Soon, six months after this feast, where he proclaims what he just did, he himself will be broken and the Holy Spirit would be poured out. You know, Jesus is the living water. The living water is so amazing because living water is free. In fact, if you'll go to that next slide, just think about it in this way. There's a flow out of the living water. There's no stagnation. See, we're not supposed to get stagnant right now. We are not supposed to just say, okay, whatever. We're not supposed to lollygag around. 
the stream is supposed to be flowing out of us. And oh man, it's alive. And where living water goes, it's going to make a difference to other people too. The living water will refresh other people. Friends, we need more than anything else to keep going back and getting more and more of the living water. Keep drinking that living water. Keep having that stream flow and flow more. We can't let it stop. I have a picture here of a couple of streams that actually were stopped up. I had a hard time finding these, and I don't know if you can see it, but when you think about it, even a stream can get stopped up. It, it can, branches can go across it, things can roll into it, clutter, muck, stuff can stop up a stream. There are whole stories of this that I won't take the time to go into, but man, you know, like whole villages have lost their water supply simply because no one tended to the stream and made sure that the stream was flowing. And this is not the time to let our streams get blocked up. We cannot just let our muck stay inside and stop up the stream of the Spirit. Get rid of it. Get out of it. Pray. Let it go so that the stream of living water can flow through you too as a Christian out to the world that is so in need of the living water. Whatever it takes, we just have to keep going back and back and back and saying, God, Clean this up out of my life. Take this thing out of my life. Get this muck out. I don't want this stuff anymore. We can't let, we can't afford to let any sin or stuff muck up the stream of the Spirit in our lives. This is the time to let the stream of the Spirit flow. I'd like to go to a a verse that is parallel, if you will. And it's in Jeremiah 2.22. As I was preparing this, I couldn't get this verse out of my mind. It says, be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, or 20, yeah, 13, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the stream of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now let me just talk about this for a while. He said, even heaven is going to be appalled at the fact that we have forsaken the springs of living water. Instead of going to God, instead of going to the Spirit, we forsake him and, and we look at other things. I found a picture of a cistern, a broken cistern, as a matter of fact. A cistern is simply a place where they collected water. So in order to get a cistern, to have a cistern work and get water in there, it would have to rain. Well, what if it doesn't rain? Well, what if there's a drought? Then they wouldn't have any water. And if the cistern is broken, 
it won't hold water for long. It might collect on a big rainstorm, but it's going to seep out because it's broken. So that verse in Jeremiah is incredible. He was basically saying, Oh, people, you've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and you've hewed for yourselves cisterns, broken cisterns at that, that won't hold any water. Well, friends, we've got to go to the spring. We've got to go to Jesus himself. We have to go and spend time in the spirit. We can't get anything from anybody else. We can't make our own cisterns. And the more I thought about that, I thought, oh, man, we do this all the time. I mean, we try to take care of the pain in our lives, the things that are hurting, the things that aren't working, with other things than Jesus. We build our own cisterns. And I just listed a few that came to my mind. You know, when we're hurting or whatever, what do we go to? Do we go to TV or movies? Do we go to sports? Do we go to social media? Do we go to some kind of entertainment? Do we think we need clothes? Do we think we need more things for our house or a better house? Do we need a title? I mean, even our children can be a broken sister, and they aren't the answer. They aren't the spring. They're great. We love them, but they're not it. God is it. <laughs> Jesus is he is the spring of living water. And we cannot avoid him and just stick in other things that pass over our pain. Friends, abandon any cisterns that you possibly might have made because God wants you to have the spring. God wants to keep giving you the living water. God keeps wanting to give you more. And only that will satisfy you. It is the only thing. And it's alive. And a cistern becomes stagnant. A cistern is all leaves fall into it, stuff falls into it. Who needs that? The spring, it keeps coming up. It's fresh. It's fresh again. It's a new thing now. It's a new thing that it never was before. It's fresh, living water that God has for you. At this season, we need that so much. And I feel like part of this thing with water, what came to my mind was waterfalls. I, I was thinking about the fact that we keep having we keep needing to just get washed, don't we? I mean, being in this world just makes us dirty. Are you with me? I mean, it, it's like, I don't know, wherever I turn, it's like, yuck. Ooh, eh, I don't like that. It's the, I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? I talk to the news sometimes. It's like, no, <laughs> this is not right. It's like I feel sullied unless I get it straight, unless I tell the truth. And God keeps wanting us to take our pain 
and our sin that we do just as human beings. I mean, that's who we are. We're going to muck up. And he just wants us to walk under that living water, to walk under the waterfall, to get washed, to get grace, to get his love, to get his forgiveness, to get hope again. Oh, we get to come to the living water. We get to drink. We get to be washed. How incredible. I'd, before I end, I just want to say a couple things that will bring us around to the day. I believe the Feast of Tabernacles is such an interesting picture of um, what's going to come in these last times. In fact, the Messianic Jews, the Jews that have um, believed in the Messiah and believe it was Jesus, um, they look at Sukkot as the second coming of Jesus. And they basically say, you know, we're, they were saying, come, come, come. And, and it's like, okay, Jesus is going to come a second time. Not only did he come a first time, he's going to come a second time. In fact, they say that in the harvest of souls, the harvest festival, the idea of the fruit, that all of that is going to signify the last days in which we see a lot of people coming to the Lord. I believe that this is the purpose for revival. I believe revival is not just for us. It is also for everybody else. I believe God is wanting to sweep in a vast number of people in the end days. I believe that he is wanting to just sweep in a whole bunch of souls that there's going to be fruit like we cannot imagine. And I hunger for revival. I, I want to say that I really believe that what is going to happen is that we need to be prepared before revival sweeps our society. I think it will sweep our society. I think we need to think big. I think it's going to be around the world. It won't just be in Galena or Joplin. It's not going to just be in the United States. It's not just going to be in one church. It's going to sweep around the world. In fact, this idea of the nations coming, that was part of the harvest feast. That was part of the Sukkot, that the nations would come in. Everybody was supposed to come in, even the servants who were from some other countries. See, I think that shows the global perspective of what's going to happen. And I think God wants to do such a major work. And I have something in my heart to tell you. You are so hungry for what God wants to do. I believe you are. I sense it. But I want to tell you, get yourself revived. If you go to the fountain of living water on an ongoing basis, you will be revived. You can stay vived. You don't have to get revived, get vived again, if you're vived. So I want to say to you, to this church, stay vived, would you?
And here's what I want you to know. If you stay vibed, then when God sends a move in society, you'll be ready to receive him. If you're not vibed yourself, you're going to be up at the altars with everybody else and not have time to minister. Got the picture? They're going to need you to be alive. And I've been in revival. <laughs> I've had months down in Argentina preaching and being in the middle of that awesome revival. I've been other places where revival has occurred. I know what it's like. But you know what? I came out of there and I said, it's not over for me. I'm going to stay vibed. I got revived. I'm staying vibed. That's my life. I don't care what anybody else does. I don't care where anybody else is. I am going to do what it takes to stay vibed. And I'm going to go back to the fountain of living water, and I'm going to keep coming to him, and I'm going to keep the Holy Spirit in my life in such a way that the stream comes out no matter where I am and what is going on. And I'm ready. I'm ready to do whatever God wants me to do. And that's what God wants for you right here in Galena, Kansas, on all your Joplin people. God wants to do it again in this area. And wait, okay. you know, when revival happens, I can tell you, people just start flowing into the parking lot. Someday you're going to think, what happened? Because the presence of God comes down on the whole area. And people start walking around saying, where do I go to church? They start getting hungry, and they start wandering in. I want you to be ready for them, okay? I want you to be ready to minister to them and to touch them because they're going to be so hungry. I want you to be ready to win them to the Lord. I want you to be ready to disciple them. I want you to be ready. And if you're ready inside, Anxious to see them come, they will. How are you going to get to know their names? How are you going to follow up? Think about it. Put together a plan because so many places that had a sudden revival, everybody said, it just took us by surprise and we hardly knew what to do. But you know what? It's not going to take you by surprise because you're ready for it. You're wanting it. So get ready. Think it through. What happens if 100 people come into your parking lot and get saved one, one Sunday? And you know what? They're going to bring all their family and friends because they had a big change, and the next Sunday you're going to have five times that much. You get my picture? So you rip down the back walls there, and you, you know, make more space, and you start ministering to them and teaching. Oh, God has plans. And as I end today, I'm going to end in a very different way. I would like you, um, you can sit where you are for now, but I'd like you just to sit there in quiet for a little bit. I'd like that quiet to be a time of repentance and reflection. 
just like it was on the Feast of Tabernacles on the last and greatest day. Just like it was when Jesus' voice rose out of the silence and said, anybody can come to me and drink. All who are thirsty, come 